Hello everyone, welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 31. Today's story is another almost resolved case, but it comes to you from the Lumberton, North Carolina area, where finally it seems they've managed to catch a killer, and the crime for which this alleged killer is being charged occurred over 30 years ago. Today, we're going to talk about the long-forgotten rape and murder of Grace Harden. Grace Harden was a 79-year-old retired waitress and cook. She lived alone in a small bungalow in the San Diego, California area. While she was characterized as a nice lady by neighbors, She kept to herself and received few visitors other than her home health workers. Grace was also at times picked up by a transport service to attend doctor's appointments. She was known to keep the door to her little stucco house unlocked. Many might wonder why an elderly woman living alone would ever keep her door unlocked. Well, Grace was in delicate health. So it's possible that because she received both daily and weekly visits from home health workers, it would have been easier for Grace to leave her door unlocked so she wouldn't have to get up and walk over to the door to let the worker in. It was there in that unlocked little stucco bungalow on May 20th, 1987, that Grace Hayden was found to have been sexually assaulted and murdered. Her daily visitor, the home health caregiver found her body on the floor. The small house appeared to have been ransacked, but there's no sign of forced entry. Did the killer know that Grace never locked her door? One single latent fingerprint was found on the stove in Grace's kitchen. Now back then in the 80s, much of this information was kept in state databases. California used what was called CalID, and CalID held prints for arrestees and convicted offenders. Over the years, systems began to merge and it became easier to share data with other states. The FBI created a database called APHIS, which stands for Automated Fingerprint Information System. California was one of the states which began to integrate its existing fingerprints into the APHIS system and add new fingerprints. But not all jurisdictions implemented this system quickly. Also, jurisdictions were individualized in terms of their policies regarding the collection of fingerprints. Still, at this time, California law enforcement officials were eager to improve their processes, thus clearing more cases faster, and implementing APHIS was just one way to do that. A boon for supporters of this new computer-aided technology was the capture of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Ramirez was a prolific serial killer who happened to have left behind latent prints. Typically, investigators would need to compare fingerprints on file manually, looking at each one and comparing those features to the prints they had. But in 1985, their state-automated system greatly reduced the time requirement by using software to compare the images of fingerprints statewide. It was still slow, but definitely much faster than a person comparing them manually. 
this software and database offered critical evidentiary value in the prosecution of the Ramirez case. He'd been fingerprinted for a traffic violation, and then later, after terrorizing the community with his raping and murdering, they found a latent print in a car he stole and used in the crimes. This was great forensic evidence to support a case against him when he was finally caught. By 1987, though, things were evolving even more, as APHIS, the national system, was beginning to be routinely used by California law enforcement agencies. Comparing fingerprints with those of other states was still a clunky and time-consuming process, but at least they were afforded that opportunity if necessary. Slowly, states which were previously decentralized joined this nationwide system. It's also worth mentioning that since the implementation of APHIS in local and nationwide agencies, this technology has grown exponentially. Just when everybody became connected nationally, the FBI was coming out with something newer and more powerful. They came up with a system for enhancing fingerprints to make them easier to match, and newer algorithms which resulted in decreased response times. Now, the FBI has a new system in place. It's called NGI, which stands for Next Generation Identification. It's extremely powerful and holds much more data and types of data, and it also combines other databases. For example, now you can match palm prints, now it offers facial recognition using mugshots and even iris identification. This technology is advancing quickly. Due to these advancements, local agencies with cold cases older than 2013 have been encouraged to work on resubmitting their prints from those cases if they've not been able to find a match. Since agencies are now resubmitting these prints, old cases are being cleared. This offers new hope to loved ones waiting for justice. This is all good news, and we talk a lot about DNA, but the truth is, fingerprinting is an excellent source of forensic evidence, and it's been used for over 100 years and also tested in criminal court. This source is only going to get better. The other thing I think we should mention, just in case any listeners out there are wondering about the type of fingerprint found in Grace's house. As we said, it was characterized as a latent fingerprint, which meant that it was a print that couldn't be seen by the naked eye. So if your hands are relatively clean, and you don't have a bunch of dirt or blood or whatever on them, you touch the stove, it will leave a latent print. And these are the prints you see when investigators have dusted areas with that carbon dust. A surface such as a stove is a great place to leave a latent print because it's relatively non-porous and smooth, and it doesn't absorb oils the same way some other surfaces might do. When Grace Hayden was murdered, San Diego had been using and contributing to APHIS for two years. It was still very new, and the print that they would have submitted was likely not scanned at the highest quality. So just this year, in February, cold case investigator Tony Johnson with the San Diego District Attorney's Office decided to resubmit the print from Grace Hayden's stove. It was a long shot. But to their astonishment, just as other cold case investigators around the country have been astonished when they resubmit, this submission produced a result. 
This result happened to show the prints and more specifically the left ring finger of a man by the name of Kevin Thomas Ford. He was a resident of a town near Lumberton, North Carolina called St. Paul's. Now, Ford was arrested in 2015 for communicating threats. He was having a dispute with a local pharmacy, it seemed, and it was alleged that he was threatening the pharmacy staff. Ford was taken in and Robeson County Deputy John Blount decided to fingerprint Ford because he was threatening violence. He later said that doing so was being encouraged as a best practice, but there was not a policy dictating that he did so. Blount, who made that discretionary call, had no way of knowing that this decision would bring a cold case out of the freezer and lead to the apprehension of a wanted killer who had been walking among the people of Robeson County for decades. After identifying Ford, local authorities placed him under surveillance and then got a warrant for his DNA and for his palm print. Then in June, they brought him in to obtain these samples. One can only wonder what was going on in Ford's head when he was pulled over while driving down the road with his wife and they tell him they have a warrant to bring him in to get these samples. Did they tell him what case they were trying to match his DNA to? In any event, Ford's DNA was found to be a match to the DNA semen samples taken from the Grace Hayden murder scene. 62-year-old Kevin Thomas Ford was arrested in July. He's been charged with first-degree murder and he'll soon be extradited back to California. Grace Hayden, it was thought, had no living relatives, but an investigator recently found that she had a grandson who was still alive. He never knew her. They immediately notified him of this new development in her murder case, and her grandson, who we're not going to name, but who is named in some news articles, told a reporter that he's ready to forgive Ford. Well, that is his choice, and we respect his choice, it's his decision to forgive Ford. But the community has not forgiven Ford, and he's been enjoying freedom among the community all these years and apparently hasn't made a positive impression on many people in the community, according to local news reports. Kevin Thomas Ford will be brought to justice in due time for raping and murdering a vulnerable elderly woman. As of his arrest, Ford was maintaining his innocence. Ford said he was working for a company called Wheel Transport during the time of Grace Hayden's murder. His claim is that he most likely transported Ms. Hayden to a doctor appointment, and that's how his print would have managed to end up on her stove. It had already been established that he lived near Grace's house, and he also confirmed that that was true. In the years leading up to 1987, he got himself into trouble for defrauding the California State Unemployment Insurance Division. So he was on probation for a while. And he also told investigators that he had developed a cocaine habit. He said this habit caused the end of his marriage. And after getting clean, he got that job as a driver for wheel transport. In 1987, Ford would have been 31 years old. Despite having a job, Ford was homeless so he began to live in the transport van that he was driving for wheel transport. But once management found out about him living in the van, he was fired. It's believed that around the year 1991, 
Ford moved out of California and eventually ended up living in North Carolina, from which he originates. Now, we've not been able to confirm exactly where he's been living this entire time. Neighbors said that he had lived in his current home in St. Paul's for approximately 17 years with his current wife. They also said that Kevin Ford was a bully who walked around with a gun on his hip all the time, and he was rude to women. They told reporters stories about him, like how they would see him shooting dogs and puppies right out in the open. Aside from traffic violations in North Carolina, however, he seems to mostly have stayed out of trouble until he was charged with communicating terroristic threats over that dispute he had at the local pharmacy. The victim in that case didn't show up for court, so despite having his fingerprints taken, Ford was able to have those charges dismissed. So that's what we know right now about Kevin Ford. After reading about this case, we all have been wondering if law enforcement in Robeson County and even nearby counties are going to have a fresh look at their cold cases that have been sitting unattended for years. And there are lots of them. We talked about some of these cases in Episode 2 of our I-95 series. We profiled several victims of violent crimes whose killer have never been caught. So because of this new development, we wanted to quickly remind you all of these cases. Now first though, some of the cases we talked about, they already had suspects, including people like John Wayne Boyer, a serial killer who was a trucker. He's even admitted to some of these crimes, but of course he hasn't been convicted of them. And we're not going to be addressing those. But here we go, our quick reminder of these local cold cases. In 1995, on July 29th, 22-year-old Tracy Lynn Johnston was found dead in Robeson County off Old Whiteville Road. Not much more information about Tracy's provided, and her cause of death was never released. So there isn't much help the public can be to the investigating agency here, since we know pretty much nothing about this victim. Skip ahead to March 30th of 2003, Michelle Driggers' nude body was found in the driveway of an old cemetery in Lumberton. This cemetery is located off Hestertown Road. Michelle had been beaten, bludgeoned, stabbed, strangled, and raped. Her belongings were scattered around. If she had been your daughter, sister, or friend, wouldn't you want this person caught? Michelle's dad put up a $500 reward for information leading to an arrest. When he made the announcement, he also addressed reports in the news about what his daughter was doing in the area. I just think this case isn't coming along fast enough. Whatever she's done, she didn't deserve to be beaten to death. He said, I just want to try to speed up the process and find the person who brutally killed my daughter. He had no way of knowing the police weren't speeding up anything. In fact, the person who had the motivation and the ability to do that to Michelle has not been caught and brought to justice. So some authorities would say, and have said coincidentally, less than four months later on July 12th, another woman's body was found. It was approximately a mile and a half away from Michelle's body's location, this time near some old railroad tracks in Lumberton. 
It was behind an old warehouse. We don't know how long 36-year-old Lisa Hardin had been dead before she was found by a person walking through the woods. Lisa had been murdered by blunt force trauma and beating. We have no other details about her physical injuries. The scene was also littered with her belongings strewn about. There isn't much known about Lisa aside from the same things we've been talking about with some of our other victims. The Lumberton Police Department spokesperson told the local newspaper, The Robisonian, quote, She has been charged for soliciting prostitution, but I wouldn't say she's one of our regular street walkers. We're just investigating this as a homicide and nothing else. Unquote. Okay, so what else would they be investigating the case as besides a homicide? On July 25, 2003, 20-year-old Rachel Keyes was found in Pender County in a pond off North Carolina Highway 53. She was from Fayetteville, just up I-95 from Robinson County, and she had been reported missing weeks prior. So her body would have spent that whole time decomposing in a hot North Carolina pond. Later, Rachel's grandfather expressed frustration to local media saying he no longer watched crime shows in which technology is used to solve cases. He didn't see his granddaughter's case getting anywhere near that type of attention. You know, it's pretty sad when they don't even share any information with the family, so the family just has to assume that nobody is working on the case. So we had all these women, they're all dead, they're all dumped, police not providing information about the deaths. At the time, the local media raised the possibility that someone might be targeting prostitutes, and they suggested that some were even worried there was a serial killer working in the area. These aren't the only unsolved murders, suspicious deaths, and of course, disappearances, but they were just similar enough that we decided to mention them again. Robinson County and the Lumberton Police Department can ask for help from the SBI or the FBI if they'd like to get these murders cleared. The public deserves to know whether or not these cases are being worked, and we deserve to be assured that if there's evidence to test, it's being tested. It's a grave misuse of public trust when authorities fail to do their jobs and then cover up their failure under the guise of the, quote, integrity of the case. Using that as an excuse is an insult to every other agency that actually is working a case while not releasing information about it in order to preserve its integrity. We want to know, was evidence collected responsibly and preserved? When was the last time the evidence was tested? What databases has this information been uploaded to? Were rape kits ever performed? And were those profiles sent to the databases? If you have not done any of this, how about you get in gear right now so we can eliminate Kevin Thomas Ford and move on trying to find the person or people responsible and also see if these murders are connected by forensic evidence. It's not that hard, guys. You just need to do it. They're already connected geographically, but just from the tiny amount of information available to the public, we can see that they're also connected by signature components and also some behavioral components. And we're going to get to this stuff in a minute. 
Now, Kevin Thomas Ford is going to answer for the rape and murder of a 79-year-old woman. According to that evidence, he raped her and strangled her to death when he was 31 years old. It would be naive to assume that this would have been his only rape and murder. He deliberately chose someone who was vulnerable and who he could easily control. So he planned this. How many people that you know of who would rape and strangle an elderly woman to death only committed that act one time? It doesn't happen like that. She wasn't in a relationship with them. So we have to ask ourselves why? What's the motive here? Well, all you have to do is look at what he did. He said he had, quote, cleaned himself up from the cocaine habit before getting that job at wheel transport. So he could have been clean, he could have been high. Either way, he planned this act. He knew her schedule. He knew when someone would be at her house. He knew she never locked her door and that sometimes she even left it open. And then he raped her. Why did he rape her? I can tell you why. It's because he wanted to. He ransacked her house, probably looking for stuff to steal, perhaps taking a trophy with him. He did all that because he wanted to. It's as simple as that. Why did he kill her? Well, had to be either he wanted to kill someone, which isn't a far stretch if someone also wants to rape, that's part of the profile, or he didn't want to leave a witness. I'm leaning towards he just wanted to kill someone in addition to raping them. And as these people progress in their criminality, their plans get more detailed, and they become more confident they make slight changes to suit themselves in terms of satisfaction or ease in carrying out their fantasy. And they do fantasize about it, then they plan it, and then they do it. Each time, they carry out one more crime, they learn more, and they hone their skill. And they look for people who are easy to get control over and who are vulnerable. If Kevin Thomas Ford is a serial offender, then police in California better keep looking at those cold cases from the 80s, and police in North Carolina better get started looking at those cold cases from the 90s and 2000s. Because when he moved back to North Carolina, he was home and in relatively safe territory. One thing about the cold cases from North Carolina we've talked about today is something that we need to remember. Guns are easy to access in North Carolina, especially in Lumberton. If someone wanted to rob these ladies and get rid of them so they couldn't identify who did it, they would have just robbed them and shot them. Let's look at some of these components. For the most part, we have women who were beat and strangled. They were raped. Someone went through their belongings and took what they wanted. Kind of like what happened to Grace Hayden, right? Now, in North Carolina, these women were also dumped or left somewhere without much done to conceal the crime because the killer knew the area very well. Kind of like how Ford would have known nobody was coming back that day to see Grace Hayden, but someone would find her the next day. The North Carolina victims were also dumped in somewhat close proximity to one another. Somebody enjoyed abusing them, having power over them, and dehumanizing them. That is what makes raping and killing so exciting and satisfying. Then I'm reminded of the neighbor telling media that Ford would shoot puppies and dogs. He's said to have a hot temper 
and makes threats of violence. So is he used to getting what he wants through violence and intimidation? We hope that this case will provide some motivation on the part of authorities in Robeson and Pender counties to review their cold cases and look not only at the forensic evidence like biological data, but also look for links, such as the offender's signature behaviors, the proximity of the victim's locations, and the methods of assault. We'd like to see them reviewing the autopsies and looking at similarities there, too. It may be too late for the victims we've talked about today, but prostitution is alive and well in Lumberton right now. If you drive through there, you'll see women standing around on the street with their pimps right there. The Lumberton Police Department has an opportunity to connect with these vulnerable women, to surveil the Johns who are soliciting for prostitution, and to make sure they know who always seems to be around when someone comes up dead. For now, if you live in Robeson County or Pender County or anywhere in that area, call up the authorities, find out who's responsible for these cases, find out who their bosses are, find out who your district attorney is, call their offices. Ask them, what's going on with the Tracy Lynn Johnston case? What's going on with Michelle Driggers? What's up with the Lisa Harden case? Have you guys figured out who killed Rachel Keyes? The only way they're going to address these cases is if the public gets involved and demands it. There's no reason for vulnerable women to keep dying and being dumped in the Robeson County area. The only reason it keeps happening is because people can get away with it. Let's stop this right now. If we don't want raping and pillaging going on in our communities, we need to make sure authorities know that we have the expectation of safety. And just because someone is a sex worker or a drug addict or vulnerable in some way, that they can be raped and murdered and thrown out like trash and then forgotten about. We are not forgetting about them. We want to congratulate the authorities in San Diego for not giving up on the case of Grace Hayden, who they believe deserves justice. We also want to thank Deputy Blount with the Robeson County Sheriff's Office for responsibly collecting the data of an arrestee. Without his common sense decision making, we wouldn't be able to tell you this story today. And Grace Hayden surely would never get any justice. We're going to keep you updated on how this case proceeds and if we hear any updates on these other cases. We thank you for listening today. We will talk again soon. <laughs>